If you can take a Bible and want to turn to page 92 and 93, we're in Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read that chapter and then part of Exodus 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Well, in response to that, the Lord tells Moses to chisel out new tablets of stone, which will be engraven by the Lord with the covenant. And this is in response, this is part of the restoration that is coming. And as Moses has these tablets in hand, we pick up the narrative at verse 5 of chapter 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders, never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So we're in the season of Advent. Christmas is galloping towards us. I imagine you'll need a bit of quiet time at some point. I've got the ideal place for you. If you want a quiet spot on your own, you need to go to... Uh, I'll find my clicker so I can pull it up and give you even the map reference. Point Nemo. I'm not sure you can even see that very clearly. You can look it up later. Um, you'll be able to see that on the uh, left there, there's Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and on the right, there's uh, South America. And in the middle, 1,670 miles from any land in the South Pacific is Nemo Point. Even the scientists who calculated its location have never been there. It's the place furthest from any land on our globe. And in fact, the closest human beings, if you were out there at that point, uh, which would be scary, adrift in a yacht or something, um, the only humans that might be closer to you are the crew of the International Space Station as it passes overhead. Now, even if you like your own company, and even if the preparations for Christmas get too much, there is a limit to how much we can be on our own, isn't there? The moment on your first day, just think of that going to school and your mum or dad or carer has just dropped you off, 
at the playground and you're heading into this new environment, it's a daunting one, isn't it? On your own. And stepping out on your own, whether it's that new job, the new city, the new home, the, the new church, it feels scary. Uh, J.R. Tolkien captured this well in his story, The Hobbit. Um, there's a point where Bilbo and the dwarves are going to enter Mirkwood Forest halfway through their, their journey. And they find out that Gandalf the Grey is not going with them. Now, he's been their counselor, their guide, their rescuer. So that news did not go down well. This is how it's described. The dwarves groaned and looked most distressed, and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them out of difficulties. They begged him not to leave them. They offered him dragon gold and silver and jewels. But he would not change his mind. Being alone is not all it's cracked out to be. As humans, you see, we're created in God's image. Isolation is not good for us. We were created for community with God's people and ultimately for fellowship, communion with God. And yet in our sinful and rebellious state, we have pushed God out of our lives. And this is disastrous. Last week in Exodus chapter 32, we read the nightmare of the golden killer calf. How Israel abandoned the Lord God, who was their rescuer, their sustainer, and suffered the consequences of that. And here in chapter 33, Israel are coming to terms with that. They're coming to terms with the shocking news that the Lord is saying he will not go with them. He will not go any further. Now, that is striking news, isn't it? God's not going with you. How does that make you feel? You can imagine the distress. Look at verse 1 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people, you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the tribes Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds so positive, doesn't it? God is going to fulfill his promise. Israel will leave the desert. Moses is going to lead them. God will give them an angelic being to protect them. And they'll settle down in Canaan, the promised land. But there's bad news. Verse 3b, it's clear. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. This verse doesn't mean that God's temper is out of control. Throughout Exodus, throughout the scriptures, God is described in human terms. So we read in Deuteronomy 32, God is a rock, which points to his strength and stability. Or in Jeremiah 3, the, the uh, image that keeps coming back throughout Old and New Testament, God as a husband, who's, who's pictured loving uh, with faithful commitment. That's the picture of God as a husband, the faithful one. It's a way, therefore, that this language accommodates God to our limited minds, using images and pictures that help us understand. 
So when we read that God considers destroying someone, we're not to connect that perhaps where we might go with the sort of malicious psychopath, painting him as a criminal that's going to get a life sentence. No, God doesn't have the same sinful emotions as us. No, his compassion and mercy are all part of his holy justice and his perfections in all his ways. What God is saying here, that sin has consequences. That he is the one who can perfectly bring that judgment about. And ultimately, relationally, it would be safer for Israel in the state they're in if he didn't go with them at all. The irony is, though, the people of God in some way want God to be with them. That that's why the rabble crowd pressured Aaron to make a killer calf. They wanted God to be right there with them. They needed something to touch, to see, something that kind of looked like what other people do around them. Something made out of the highest thing they valued, the highest treasure they had. Let's use our gold. But because of that idolatry, the Lord wouldn't be with them at all. The Bible commentator Peter Enns put it like this. It's not a setback. It's the end of the road. And Israel's repentance in verses 4 to 6 is a serious and sincere recognition of the terrible position they are in. This is what personal repentance looks like. Whenever we realize that something is causing us to sin, we need to confess it. We need to get rid of it right away. The Israelites strip off the ornaments, the very things that they'd used for false worship. No more. On the floor. Get rid of it. And actually, that, that practical step is this, this gold is then handed over to the Lord and is used later for the tabernacle. It's put to the purpose it was meant for. And so when it comes to just that conviction, God's word upon your heart, act upon it. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing, as painful as it might be in the moment. Because God won't give up on us. So if your computer games are causing you to have too many tantrums and outbursts, Delete them from your hard drive. Sack them. If your Netflix subscription, your YouTube or Instagram account is selfishly wasting time that you could be using for other people, for work, for serving others, unsubscribe, block them. If it leads your heart and mind to think and fantasize about things that just aren't real life, turn away from it. It's dust. Get accountable with other people. As a community, challenge each other with genuine repentance. That's what we want to be. And we need to make sure that we move forward with the Lord. To hear those words, God's not going with you, should absolutely frighten us. It should stop us in our tracks. We don't want to return to the sin that we dabble in, so kill it. I love the way Solomon in Proverbs puts it. Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to his vomit, 
so a fool returns to their folly. We see here in chapter 33 as Israel grapple with the the consequences of what they've done. On our hearts should be the, the desire not to go to the place of sin and folly. The full force of being left alone by God has hit them hard like a solo sailor realizing they're in Point Nemo. No one else is there. They'd lost the only thing that really mattered, their relationship with God. And even though an angel's promised, even the way it's put, it isn't the presence of the Lord. It's not the angel of the Lord, the manifestation, the the mediator of the divine that goes with the people. They wanted to walk with God. But we see hope. We see hope. And that comes in the second part of chapter 33, the tent that brings God and man together. Now, you won't get this tent at Decathlon, and it does more than keep you dry. Let's look at verse 7. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent outside the camp. Verse 10. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp and Joshua would not leave the tent. So this tent of meeting, it's not the tabernacle which Moses has been getting the instructions about. The tabernacle where God will dwell in the midst of the camp. But it is the tent where Moses met with God. Now, interestingly, though, we're told this, this distinction. It's, it's right outside. It's a distance outside of the camp. Because that in itself shows the Israelites are under judgment. God hadn't totally abandoned them. The tent of meeting was a visible sign, again, of his grace, his goodness. But it was also a painful reminder of the effects of their sin. However, the privilege Moses enjoyed was speaking to the Lord as if he was talking to a friend, just chatting to someone. Access without the safety barriers. It's amazing. God's pleasure, his goodness, meant that Moses was accepted. That Moses' faithfulness showed he treasured and depended on God's presence. And the phrase face-to-face doesn't mean that Moses could see God. Just a, a few verses later, God says, no one may see me and live, verse 20. So again, it's a, a figure of speech showing that, that Moses had direct communication, immediate access to God. But even however that happened in the tent, it was mediated. There was a way in which the divine was there, but... Moses never saw the Father in all his splendor and glory. No one can. Needs to be mediated. And it's interesting that in the tent, it's not like Moses just chatted about what they'd been watching on TV or asking God stupid questions like, if you're God, can you make a rock that you can't pick up? You know, that that wasn't the, the, the atmosphere in the tent. He used the time with God to serve God's people 
to heal the divide, to plead with, for God's help. We get to listen in on this immense deal-making conversation in verses 12 to 23. And just look at that first request in verses 12 through to 16. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Verse 15, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? It's summed up quite simply as, I need you. We need you. You see, Moses honestly lays out the big, the big need. I can't lead these people on my own. The whole rescue plan from Egypt to Sinai has never been about Moses and his awesome leadership skills. He's a tool. He's a tool in the Lord's hands. And what does he say? Let me know you will, you, you will be with me. Let me know who you will send with me. And the grounds for asking is what God has promised. We've seen this again when Moses was interceding for the people in chapter 32. Moses takes God's words and prays them back to him. That is what we do as believers, as Christians. We take what God has promised and we say, please do it. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. You see, Moses boldly rests on the grace or favor. It's the same word in the Hebrew, favor and grace, that God has already counted to him. But, you see, this isn't a, a dry request for more resource, like uh, Tesco's advertising for extra staff around Christmas to stack the shelves, to work the tills. No, it's not a, we just need a bit more human resource here. There's a relational hunger that needs to be satisfied. Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Can you see, Moses is hungry. He's hungry for a deeper friendship with God, to know him even more. And, and his questions in verses 15 to 16 get to the heart of the issue. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Can you see? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, without the Lord, Moses is saying, there really is no point in moving forward. They can have the land, they can have the homes, they can have the freedom from Egypt, but it's nothing without the Lord at the heart of it all. Now, the comedian Tony Hancock, who entertained millions throughout the um, 50s um, and had a massive radio presence, TV presence, entertained millions. He committed suicide tragically in Australia at the age of 44. And in one of the notes he left, he said, true happiness is impossible to attain. True happiness is impossible to attain. 
Whether it's hearing the, the laughter and applause of countless audience or the success of filling stadiums night after night on a world tour or having a book on the New York Times bestseller list. All of these things leak happiness and satisfaction. Even settling in the promised land flowing with milk and honey is empty because... We're meant to find all our longings, all our happiness and worth in God. Only his presence will make us and will make sense of life for us. You see, Moses' future is bound here with the Israelites and it rests on God's undeserved favor. Come with us. Make your name known through us. Otherwise, it's pointless. It's dust. And what does God promise in verse 17? How wonderful it is that he's pleased to do this. My presence will go with you, verse 14. I will give you rest, verse 17. I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. You see, for God to know someone by name is to embrace that person. It's a relationship of acceptance and friendship. It's the best place to be. Moses is the object of God's grace. God knew him in a loving and saving and electing way. And God knows all his children like this. Anyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and King is God's friend, is known by him, is loved by the great I Am. The Israelites haven't won back God's love, but his goodness and mercy is upon them because that is who he is, verse 19. I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the Lord's summary of his self-sufficient goodness because he is what he is. We have hope because He is the I am. We have hope. Grace and mercy and favor constantly flow from this closed circle of God's inner goodness. It has to be that way. It can't come from outside. It has to be from the Lord. And who God is really fuels our prayer. It It means we can persevere in prayer. Boldness in prayer comes to those who are certain of their approval and acceptance by God through his divine love. You see, we see this beautifully, ultimately, in the way that Jesus Christ prays for his family on the night of his arrest before the crucifixion. So in John 17, verses 24 and 26, if you want to turn there, please do, but I'll read them. John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. And then in verse 27, I have made them, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Go away and read it again and and just meditate on it. But the things that stand out quite clearly is my people with me all the time in glory. Enjoying my love. 
And what Moses courageously demands in his second request in verse 18, show me your glory. What Moses asks there, Jesus desires for all his followers. That is Jesus' purpose. What Moses is hungry for, Jesus satisfies and gives to all who believe in him. He gives us God's glory. And this is the high point of where Exodus 34 takes us. We get to see the Lord on show, yes, on his terms. But he's on show to restore relationships. Now, I know to be known as a glory seeker is not a positive compliment, is it? I don't know whether that's a term that's been used of you at any points in life. Bit of a glory seeker. It's the person who's, who's constantly seeking the spotlight or the conversation. It's me, me, me. Rarely do they ask how the other person's doing. It's the footballer who always wanting shots on goal at the expense of the other players. We never see that at the Grace Church football team on a Monday. Everyone's very servant-hearted. After you, after you. No, just score. That would be useful. Um, <laughs> but, but when it comes to God, it is entirely appropriate that in his perfections, his glory is ultimate. And we should desire to know that glory more and more. To reflect it in our lives. And he doesn't need us to reinforce his glory as if he's lacking something. It's for our benefit. It's all overflow. Why else would he agree to Moses' request in, in verse 19? I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. But even this display of glory, as we see, has to be filtered. God's blazing purity is too much for any sinful human to take. You see, seeing God is a dangerous thing. Like, remember back to our sermon series in Genesis a, a while ago, uh, this time last year. Jacob, wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32, he exclaims, I saw, the, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. You see, Jacob lives because God's presence was mediated through the divine Yahweh mediator, a messenger. The second person of the Trinity, we, we would say, who, who brings Jacob into the fullness of God, but in a way that means he isn't consumed and destroyed. You see, here, Moses wants more than meeting Yahweh, the mediator. He, he wants to see the hidden Lord. He wants to go really deep. He wants to see the invisible God. And yet, there's a sense in which we can't go there. But with these new tablets carved, these tablets marking the renewed covenant that the Lord has, has brought, Moses sees the Lord by him speaking to him. He's hiding in that rock face, chapter 33, verse 22. He's covered, and all Moses witnesses is sort of the afterburn, the back of God's glory. The real disclosure comes in that name, verses 6 and 7. And what does the Lord say as he proclaims? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Uh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now at this point, there's a connection for all authentic followers of Christ. We live by faith, not sight. And what Moses gets here is a description of God's attributes. Uh, Chapter 34, verses 6 to to 7 are some of the most important verses in the entire Bible. We know it's important because it's, it's quoted, it's referred to dozens of times, especially in the Old Testament. King David prayed, but you, O Lord, are compassionate and, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The prophet Joel said, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah, when he was going to Nineveh, complained about God's mercy to Nineveh. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see here, Moses realizes that the character, the reality of the unseen Lord had already been shown in the angel of the Lord, the divine mediator. It leads Moses to humble worship, seeking forgiveness for him and the people. Look at verses 8 to 9. That's the response of God's disclosure. We're a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin. The Presbyterian pastor, Sam Bostock, described the declaration of God's identity like a shaft of light splitting into multiple rays as it comes through a prism. You've got that light coming in and then it just scatters out through the prism. In the same way, the Lord's being must have diverse effects in creation if we're going to try and grasp the fullness of who he is. So the way the Lord acts in mercy, as well as judgment, help us know something more of his perfect goodness. So when we hear the Lord is slow to anger, it isn't that God just so happens to have the the longest internal fuse wire in all of creation. No, his slowness in anger is an outward effect. It means he delays punishment for sin. This attribute doesn't shift. It doesn't change according to our sin. He works according to his purpose and who he is. And in the same way, when we hear he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and and fourth generation. This, understandably, sounds unjust, doesn't it? It's a shock. And then we also read in Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. And again in Ezekiel 18, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So which is it to be? Is God internally confused? Is God incoherent? Now firstly, there's a good and merciful warning here. In chapter 34, verse 7, the sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. That is, the children act in rebellion against God. Exodus 20, verse 5, just a few chapters earlier, we read there at the Ten Commandments, I, the Lord, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the generations that continued in hating the Lord that will experience the same punishment as their parents did for their sin. The children really are sinful. They're rebels. They're responsible to God for what they do. And they face God's judgment for their actions. When they're responsible, grown up, they will continue in their way. So in 1 Samuel 3, I think we find a good illustration of this. Eli's sons, he was one of the priests, Eli. And his sons were serving as priests under him. And they are punished for their immorality and greed. And Eli is also held accountable by God for his sin because his sin was seen in not restraining them, not punishing his sons for their blasphemy. If Eli had intervened, at least removing them from the temple and taking those duties away from them, perhaps the sons would have repented. But Eli's sinful neglect impacted his sons And the sons were also living in their own way, rebelling against God, doing what they wanted, arrogantly disobeying his word. But because of God's grace, ultimately secured by Christ, every generation, every child, as it were, can also repent of their own sins. If they confess their iniquity, if they turn from their sin, generationally, of what the rebellion that's just gone on generation after generation we don't do God we don't know Christ that doesn't have to define the next generation turn to the Lord if they're humbled if they turn seeking forgiveness if they take that forgiveness and it transforms their life there's God's pleasure the Lord's goodness and glory is seen in the very fact that he both punishes rebellious and repentant people, but also pours out forgiveness abundantly to thousands. This is a way of seeing his goodness. And again, the warning lights in our minds might flash red as we read verse 14. For the Lord whose name is jealous, in the Hebrew el Kanar, is a jealous God. Now, I've not yet met someone with the first or middle name Jealous. But I imagine it wouldn't be a great conversation starter on a first date, would it? But um, the context here of idolatry, the idolatry that Israel has fallen into, and all believers to be tempted by, this name becomes beautiful for us. Where there's idolatry, to hear that God is a jealous Lord is beautiful. Why? Because God deserves and he requires exclusive loyalty. He hates spiritual adultery because he is the loyal, faithful husband. He hates physical adultery in human marriages because it distorts and shows something he just can never entertain. I love you, you're mine for life, forever. And his jealousy is that zeal, that love, that purpose, that faithfulness to always be there for his his people, to not let them go. 
And do you see, it's beautiful because if God allowed his people to love something else that takes his place, it would show he doesn't really care or love his people. That's why his jealousy is beautiful. His perfectly faithful, loyal love is good news for us because it means he doesn't want us settling for rotten lovers that won't last. And actually, his jealousy then, that zeal, that faithfulness, that loyalty, challenges us. It's a, well, how do you feel about me? <laughs> oh, well, I'll fit you in somehow. Oh, I've got a few other things that work for me as well. So, you know, you, you're in there, Lord. Can you see how it then convicts us? The beauty of having a Lord who is jealous for his people means he will not let us go. Philip Ryken, the, the Bible scholar and pastor, makes this so clear. He's sharing an honest reflection from a, a female missionary serving in Asia, and she brings this, this sort of our response to this Lord who is so compassionate, merciful, holy, who is faithful and jealous for his people, and she's serving in Asia, and she wrote this in a, in a uh, prayer letter. I am sitting this morning in the kitchen, and I'm caught up in two extremes. As I look out onto the makeshift type of kitchen on the porch-like area, I think with such fondness of our comfortable home in the United States. I think of how big it was, how there was so much room for the kids to play, how much well our kitchen, how well our kitchen worked, of how large our refrigerator was, how many products there were to eat, I also think of the incredible convenience of the minivan and the protection of seatbelts. I wonder, what have I been falling in love with over the last 11 years? Have I been falling in love with comfort or have I been falling in love with Jesus? I fear that all my comforts have started to act like dark sunglasses and I have not seen the glory of my Lord. They're challenging words, aren't they? And as we close, as we prepare to celebrate for Lord's Supper, we have an amazing opportunity to affirm our commitment to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to enjoy his glory, his presence with us. As we take bread and wine, by faith we are strengthened by the knowledge and the joy of salvation in Christ. This is where we see God's glory, as the Apostle Paul put. Let light for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, display the beauty and, and glory of the attributes of God, his wrath, his grace, his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his sovereignty, his love, his holiness, his wisdom, his power. This is where we know the Lord God is for us and is with us. So family today, why run anywhere else? Why run to anyone else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Good Lord, that you are the God. Merciful, compassionate, forgiving, loving, just and holy. Lord Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the full glory of the Lord, 
the invisible God who we cannot even approach. And yet in you, Lord Jesus, we have everything. You bring God to us. Father, please take our hearts and minds. Take our lives. Bring us to yourself. Help us to depend on you every day. To see you more clearly, to hunger your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.